Hi, this is Professor of Photography Jeff Curto, and welcome to class session number four of History of Photography. This class session deals primarily with portrait photography, starting in the 19th century and moving our way through to 20th and some 21st century portraits, we take a look at not only early daguerreotype and callotype photography, but we also take a look at the idea of portrait photography and try and figure out what makes a good photographic portrait. Here we are joining the class in progress. Today we're gonna to talk about portrait photography, I've titled it Light and Likeness. And we'll talk about early portrait photography, but we'll also uh, do a few other things talking about portrait photography uh, in uh, a larger a larger way or a bigger idea. So today we're going to do this stuff. We're going to talk about the daguerreotype process and kind of recap it because I kind of glided through it really quickly before uh, and so we'll kind of come back and examine it in a little bit uh, more detail. We're going to examine some daguerreotype photographs by a partnership duo of Southworth and Hawes. And while we do that, we're going to look at some ideas that were happening at about the same time that this Southworth and Hawes duo were making daguerreotype portraits. Uh, some thoughts that actually some of you may remember from some other uh, classroom activity maybe a long time ago. We're also going to compare Southworth and Hawes daguerreotypes to callotypes or paper negative, paper positives by Hill and Adamson. And then at the very end, we'll sort of examine some more modern portraits and uh, we'll see if we can come up with some uh, answers to, to some questions, which I'll, I'll get to here in just a second. So um, a couple of reminders about this. And again, this is not even remotely like required, but some of you may find some of the links that go out with these tweets to be really interesting. I know that a couple of you uh, started following me on Twitter and uh, new friends on Facebook and so forth, which is, which is great. So during class time, like, you know, when this slide appeared on screen, a tweet went out that said I'm tweeting live from my history of photography classroom. And those tweets have the hashtag photo history. So you can either follow me at Jeff Curto or you can find the search for the hashtag photo history. Or you can see on our blog page the Twitter feed that's on the right-hand side of the page, uh, which would incorporate all of those things. And then automatically, as they post to Twitter, those Twitter posts also post to my Facebook page. And what's interesting is that in the Twitter feed, I sometimes get people retweeting or responding or saying something about them. And on the Facebook page, I often get people who are responding. And sometimes those are really interesting people, like, for example, David Travis. David Travis, who was for about 20-some years uh, the chief curator of the photography department at the Art Institute of Chicago. So what you get is a much bigger picture than you might otherwise get, um, and all of the tweets relate to what's going on on the slides. So it's a little bit more depth. So again, not required but something that I think you might find interesting if you were, uh, if you were so inclined. So, <clears throat> so some questions that I want to try to answer today, and I want to start out actually by asking this first question of all of you. What makes a good photographic portrait? Deb.
genuine expression or essence of a person. You're sort of saying that those are the same thing. The expression yeah, in or other the words, um, really see them as they are instead of posed. Or... Okay. What else? What else makes a good photographic portrait? Eyes in focus. Eyes in focus. So, oh, fo do you mean in focus photographically or in terms of the, 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 the subject's connection to the camera? Or both? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, he said confidently. All right. What else? What else makes a good photographic portrait? Subject matter. Subject matter? Surroundings. Subject matter. So, so it depends on who the portrait is of <coughs> as to whether it's any good? No. No, not necessarily. Yeah, because one man's pleasure is another man's uh, whatever, right? You know, so. Poison. Poison. That's what I was looking for. So surroundings, so environment around the subject might have something to do with it. What else? Their expression. Their expression, sort of that true expression and sort of indicating that. So, you know, when you look at a portrait of somebody that you know, you often say, oh, that's a really great picture of Jim. Right? You know, you usually say, that's a great picture. It really looks like Jim. It really sort of indicates, or sometimes you'll say the opposite, that right? That is not a good picture of me, you know, or whatever. So, uh, so one sort of sub-question here is, is it technology or something else that makes it good? Is it technology behind the portrait? Like, does lighting have anything to do with what makes a good photographic portrait? Focal length? Well, if you take a picture in the dark, it's Increasingly, it's easier to do that, right? You know, we've got cameras now, 256,000 ISO, right? You know, kind of crazy, but, but true. So you can almost take a picture in the dark. So, and is the answer to this question any different today in 2014 than it was in 1845? No. I don't think there's too much difference. It's just the capabilities. Capabilities regarding technology. We can do it in color now. All right. So some other questions that we'll try to answer as we kind of go along, and we'll come back to those first three, but why was photography in general such a, such a sensation? Why was photography so popular here in America, especially portrait photography? And then what happened to this paper negative, paper positive process? Because if you read most of the history of photography, they spend most of the time talking about daguerreotype and then they sort of give a little squidgy bit about the paper negative, paper positive, and then they jump right into the wet plate collodion, glass plate negative, and paper print. So what happened to that process, and, and uh, uh, you know, where did it go? Relative to these top questions, uh, one of my very favorite writers is a guy named Peter Egan. Peter Egan. Now, this is a guy that most of you probably don't know at all because, and actually, he's not writing for them anymore, but uh, he has written uh, a monthly article for Road and Track magazine for years and years and years and years. <clears throat> the least likely place that I would ever expect to find any kind of content that had to do with the history of photography. 
But in one of his, and he was a great writer, he still is a great writer, he's just not writing for Road and Track uh, monthly anymore. Uh, but uh, in one of his articles, he wrote this, and it really just hit home with me. He said, people look different in different eras, and there's no moving them backward or forward in time. Faces reflect the world they've been looking at. Faces reflect the world that they've been looking at. And I found that really interesting. I mean, it's sort of actually the real reason that I subscribed to that magazine was to get this guy's articles every month because it was about the, the best part of the magazine. Faces reflect the world they've been looking at. It's spectacular, right? So one question we have to kind of try and answer is why photographic portraits? Why photographic portraits? I mean, how did the fact that, and this is a, a fact that we sort of covered very briefly before, but almost all photographs made with the daguerreotype process were portraits. Almost all of them, like 90-some percent, the vast majority of them. So why photographic portraits? And again, part of the, the way we can accomplish the, the answer to that question is to back up a little bit and to talk about uh, some of the things that we have talked about before. Uh, we won't talk about a lot of the details that we've talked about before, but the idea that in early years of portraiture, portraits were of the wealthy and the well-to-do and the well-off and the well-known people in the world. Whether they were very well-known or perhaps enigmatic in some way, uh, it didn't much matter, but what really happened was that people who were painted in portraits were usually people who were either royalty or some other nobility, or they had a great deal of money, or they had a great deal of time, and often it was all of those things all at once. So money, time, and, and station in life in some way. So one of the big changes that came about came about uh, in... Uh, uh, the 1500s to the 1800s, and I've just got some examples here of miniature portraits, miniature portrait paintings. You can see from looking at the detail here that these are things that were intended to be hung around your neck or displayed in some other way, perhaps attached to a pin that you had pinned to your lapel or your dress or whatever. And they were small portraits of people's faces. One of the things you can notice in all of these is the background of the picture doesn't seem to be there at all. It doesn't seem to matter. It's just sort of a nondescript background. Uh, it is the person's face. Now, of course, because they were so much smaller, they took a lot less time to paint and therefore were easier to deal with. So portrait miniatures had begun to flourish uh, in the 16th century in Europe, and the art was practiced during the 17th and 18th century. And it was especially valuable in terms of introducing people to another person. Like, you know, if there might be a marriage of, arranged between this family and that, sending a portrait of the intended uh, you know, suitor to the other family's household might be a way of arranging an introduction and seeing if there's at least some attraction for the physical uh, being of that person. So... Soldiers and sailors might carry miniatures of their loved ones while traveling, or they might leave one behind when they, uh, when they leave home so that uh, their spouse or family could kind of remember what they looked like. So miniature portraits were quite popular, but again, they were fairly expensive, fairly expensive to produce because they required some time 
and, of course, some money. Another interesting aspect of portraiture is this one, silhouettes, the art of silhouette cutting. Uh, silhouette cutting, meaning pieces of paper that were literally snipped out in the sort of shape of the shadow or profile of someone. Silhouette cutting had originated in Europe in the early 1700s. They were originally called shadows or profile shades. They were not called silhouettes. Um, just because I'm always curious about this, does anybody have silhouettes of themselves or their children at home? You know, my mom has silhouettes of me hanging on the wall in her house, right? So, because uh, it was something that was fairly popular to be done, certainly in my childhood, it maybe has fallen out of favor in the last bunch of years. Uh, but uh, prior to the French Revolution, people who made these kinds of pictures, shadow artists, shadow artists, or what they were generally called, or profile shade artists, were hired as an amusement for people at upper-class parties. So it would be something that would be happening over there in the corner, and somebody would set up a kind of a setup like this guy. You know, there's a light over here, and her shadow is being cast on this, and this guy would trace it and then cut it out and put it in a frame and so forth and so on. Like so what was that? Like a, photo like a photo booth. Like a photo booth. Like an early photo booth. Right? So while the aristocrats were having their silhouettes cut out and eating like kings, much of Europe during this particular time was starving, especially in France. So in the 1760s, the French Minister of Finance was a guy named Etienne de Silhouette. His last name was de Silhouette. Etienne de Silhouette. And he had crippled the people of France with taxation policies that were way over the top, that were kind of making people who had middle incomes incredibly destitute because he was taking a great deal of money out of their pockets. And he was oblivious to the middle class plight uh, and was much more interested in the hobby that he had, which was cutting profile shades, cutting shadow pictures. He loved it. It was his favorite thing to do. So... De Silhouette, Etienne de Silhouette, was so despised by the people of France that what uh, people did in kind of a, a protest is they all went around uh, wearing black clothing and black hats and kind of black veils saying that we are dressing a la silhouette because we are too poor to be anything other than mere shadows. So the way that we come up with this shadow picture description, silhouette, has to do with this French minister of finance. We're too poor to wear anything but shadows. So the daguerreotype. The daguerreotype. The daguerreotype is helping to solve this problem of people wanting very much to have likenesses of themselves. They wanted very much to have likenesses of themselves. So uh, the daguerreotype process, we'll cover in a little bit more detail uh, coming up here, the process involved a silver-plated piece of copper, fumed with iodine, exposed, and then fumed with mercury. The first pictures were almost always of immobile objects because the daguerreotype was very slow in terms of its, uh, what we would think of as its ISO speed or its sensitivity. Every picture was one of a kind, meaning that you couldn't make copies of these things unless you stood in front of the subject for a lengthy period of time. And the early exposures were, uh, were fairly, uh, um, fairly long, 
seven to ten minutes. And I just want to show you this. Let's see where that come over to this. This is uh, something that that uh, it, this went out with the tweet of that last slide. The Cincinnati waterfront panorama. It's actually made up of uh, I think eight uh, plates, uh, eight plates that make up a larger panoramic image. So these pictures are about this big, maybe five by seven or so. And I've included this web page here because I want you to get a sense of the detail, the level of detail that is available in these pictures. These pictures have been scanned with extremely high quality scanning equipment so that when we now go and zoom in, we can see the level of detail that's happening here. So again, think about this as being what fraction you can sort of see with this little blue box what part of this other otherwise large image, but it's not that large. Now let's think about this relative to the quality of detail that is available in our digital cameras of today. That our digital cameras of today are, are you know, capable of a certain amount of detail, but the daguerreotype carries with it an astonishing amount of detail. These eight plates, when you combine them, in fact, I think it's down here in the caption, when you combine these eight plates, it's the equivalent of a 140,000 megapixel digital image. The daguerreotype comes to America when Samuel Morse met with Daguerre in September of 1839, bought some apparatus, and returned to the U.S. So Samuel Morse was probably the first American to make daguerreotypes. Where do we know that name from, Morse? Morse code. Morse code, dots and dashes. But you know what else Morse was? He was a painter. He was an artist. So Morse was an artist who, again, like all of the other people we've talked about so far, was tremendously interested in making pictures without having to make the drawing of the picture, make the drawing of the scene. So uh, when we move forward a little bit into the late 1840s, we have some technological advances. Uh, one of those technological advances was a lens made by the company Petzval and Footlander. That's how that's pronounced, Footlander. Uh, and the, the lens, generally known as the Footlander lens, transmitted about 20 times the amount of light uh, that previous lens designs transmitted, meaning that exposure times could now be much, much shorter. There were also some additions of other kinds of silver salts to the plate that made the plates a little bit faster. And so what we got were exposure times that were under a minute, a minute or, or thereabouts. Sometimes a little longer than a minute, sometimes a little bit less long than a minute, but uh, modifications of the process to speed it up. And that was the thing that made portraiture possible, was that idea that no longer did you have to sit still for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 8 minutes for a portrait, but being able to sit still for a few seconds. 10 seconds, 30 seconds, 45 seconds for a portrait made it possible uh, to make pictures of people. And so we began to get pictures of families and just about anybody else that we might imagine. And what was really interesting was that a floodgate opened of people who were really interested in having their portraits made. Because there had been this sort of pent up desire of people wanting pictures of themselves and their loved ones, but there was no real way to make that happen. So thousands of people 
wanted to be daguerreotype. And what we end up with are really thousands and thousands of pictures of people of all stripes, of all types, of all sort of uh, ideas of where they came from. They weren't necessarily people of the upper class. They weren't necessarily royalty or uh, political figures. Uh, they weren't people who had a great deal of money. Although, in order to get a daguerreotype portrait made, it cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $30 in the 1840s, which would be the equivalent of a couple of months' wages for most people. So it was not something that you did sort of haphazardly, uh, at least in the early days of daguerreotype photography, but it was something that, uh, that, that many more people could do than could have a painted picture made. Because, of course, one of the big advantages was that it wouldn't, didn't take weeks to have the daguerreotype made. It only take a, took a matter of minutes. And, of course, as studios became more available and competition increased, the prices came down and down and down and down. And so until finally we get to uh, having a picture about the size of this one that I have up here, uh, you know, costing a, maybe a, a quarter or 50 cents a piece. Still, you know, a fairly luxury-oriented item, but, and I'll, I'll ex have you examine these when we, when we take a break. Uh, a luxury-oriented item, but otherwise, uh, uh, you know, relatively inexpensive. Are all daguerreotypes in a case like that? Yes, because, uh, so here's the, you know, here's the case that the daguerreotype is in. And they have to be in a case for two reasons. And this will become a lot more clear when we're able to kind of get up and go around the table during the break and, and see them. One is that the surface of the daguerreotype plate was very fragile. If you scraped your finger across it or even if your necktie or you know, strand of hair scraped across it, the mercury-silver amalgam that was formed on the plate by the fuming mercury would get scraped away and the picture would be messed up, would be, would be damaged. The other part is that because this is a mirror, and one of the things that you, know, you can probably see, depending on your point of view, you're either seeing a complete mirror or you're seeing a picture. So probably Anne might see a picture, but Bernie probably doesn't. Bernie probably sees a mirror. So the dilemma was that because this is a highly polished metal plate and because the places where lots of light had hit had mercury in them, mercury-silver amalgam, and the dark part of the plate had no mercury-silver amalgam, when you're looking at the plate, it really looks like just like a mirror. Until you have something dark, like this piece of metal, or piece of uh, fabric, rather, reflecting its color back into the dark areas of the pictures. And in fact, when we look at these in a little bit with the lights on, what you'll see is that the way you look at it is like this. It's really hard to look at it like this because you can't see it. So the reason Anne and Beth and so forth over here see a picture is because from their point of view, it's reflecting the darker part of the room. So they might see a picture or at least part of a picture, whereas you guys over there are going to see just a mirror. So protecting the plate and allowing for a kind of uh, way to reflect something dark <clears throat> back in. Any of you who are wearing dark, like good you know, photo students always wear black, right? Um, you know, look around. Look around the building, the art building, right? Everybody's wearing black. Uh, you know, but if you're, if you're uh, wearing darker clothes, it's going to be easier to see than if you're wearing lighter clothes because you're reflecting the darkness of whatever you're wearing back in. So it's a good question. What, what other processes were available in the late 
1840s and 50s that wouldn't have been a daguerreotype in the U.S.? Uh, the calotype, paper negative, paper positive. But uh, as we'll see when we kind of go through this a little bit more today, and we've already sort of talked about, the, the downside of the calotype, paper negative, paper positive, was what? Not as good. Not as good why? Not as clear. So the daguerreotype is unbelievably sharp, really, really sharp, and highly detailed, as we just saw, right? The calotype, or paper negative, paper positive, is much less sharp because it's using a piece of paper as a negative. So other than that, for photographic processes, that's it. Yeah. So I just did my paper on a photograph that was taken in 1898, and it was kind of grainy, mm -hmm. not great. But then I looked, some of the ones before that were much more crisp. Does that mean likely that those were two, the two different processes going on? Exactly. So you may recall that one of the things that we talked about last time and, and the time before both was that the, the glass plate negative, the, the wet plate collodion, was kind of a trade-off. It wasn't as highly detailed as the daguerreotype, but it did offer the advantage of a negative positive process, which is multiple, multiple copies, copies yeah. right? Multiple copies. The daguerreotype is one of a kind. There's one picture of this guy with the shovel. There's one picture of this guy. There's one picture. That's the only one that there is, unless he sat in front of the camera for yet another exposure. So, so the the uh, some of the processes that came after the daguerreotype weren't as high quality, but there was an acceptable trade-off because they could be reproduced in multiple. It's a good question. The newspaper guys they were using the the less quality. And of, and of course, by 1898 is what you yeah. said. Um, it might be that that the image was being, you know, you you may have seen a reproduction that was in halftone, right? Halftone reproduction. Remember, we talked about a halftone, and halftone is directly tied to uh, photojournalism and the ability to make pictures for news consumption in mass distribution magazines, newspapers. So the halftone is exactly the reason that photojournalism becomes something of value and something that has something that's possible. So halftone reproduction. So it could be that one of the and we always have to remember that it's sort of one of the things I talked about last time is that when we're looking at the pictures on screen here, I mean, you know, this picture is really only originally this big, right? This picture is really only originally that big. So we're looking at it about, you know, 25 times its normal size. And we're probably looking at a photograph made, you know, somebody made a photograph of the original daguerreotype. And I took that uh, reprint of that from a book and took a picture of it with a camera and then scanned it. And now I'm projecting it through a projection system. So the original, photographed, printed in a book, photographed by me, scanned from a slide, projected on a projector. So one of the questions that we always have to ask, you know, and I, and I, I know that I asked you to talk about the quality of the image in, in your paper, but one of the questions we always have to ask is, you know, where is this coming from? You know, what... It, and it's why getting your eyeballs in front of real photographs 
makes a huge difference. And we all know this. I mean, we've all seen the difference between, you know, what a printed image looks like and what an actual image, you know, printed in, in a book or an actual image might look like. If any of you, has anybody had their photograph printed in a magazine or a newspaper ever? You know, they don't look even remotely like, you know, it's like, oh, <laughs> some sort of terrible disappointment, right? So uh, it, there's always some sort of generational loss there. So, so your graininess might have been the original, or it might have been the reproduction that you were looking at, or it might have been the fact that the reproduction you were looking at was three reproductions old, and therefore, you know, so we never really know. It's always sort of, unless we are sitting in front of the actual object. I, I looked at a very old one, and it had almost a, um, a, a plastic cover on it. You know, it was, it was from a photo studio. One was in Detroit and one was in Nebraska. Plastic cover, meaning yeah, it was yeah. like in a plastic sleeve to protect it? No, no, no. It was actually, um, what's the right term? When you plasticize your card or something, that's what it looked like oh. it done to it. And I was trying to figure out. I thought it was a daguerreotype, but it obviously couldn't have been because it's, it's a plastic. It's Possible. Oops. So... Let me go back here. I didn't mean to go back all that way, whatever. Because um, I didn't realize that that little video starts right away. So here is how the daguerreotype process works. So there's the daguerreotype. You get to learn a little French, too, because it's translated in French. So preparation of the plate. And this is all like kind of uh, cartoon here, but you get the idea. So somebody takes a piece of silver-plated copper out of a box of similar other pieces. They put it into this jig and they take some sort of a polish and put it over it. Anybody who's polished anything that's silver knows what they're doing, right? They're polishing the silver, right? So polish the silver. They now are going to take the plate and sensitize it. So they take that silver plated piece that's been polished and they put it over a box of iodine and close the lid so that the fumes of the iodine come up onto the plate forming silver iodide compound. That plate then magically floats through the air. No, it doesn't really, but, you know, so it's now taken in the dark and put into a plate holder. So this plate holder, they're calling it chassis. Uh, the plate holder holds the plate. This is the sensitized side. There's a little slide that goes over the front of it so as to protect it from light. So there's the camera. The lens cap comes off to allow the image from the lens to be focused on the back of the camera. The lens cap is placed back on. The plate holder is placed in place of the focusing screen for the camera. Once that's done, the dark slide is removed to expose the plate underneath. The lens cap removed so that the light comes through the lens. And the image is produced, though it's now latent. So now they take this uh, little tray of mercury. They put it into this fuming box put the plate into the fuming box. They light a flame underneath the mercury so that it's heated up. The mercury vapors come up against the plate, and as mercury vapors come on the plate, the image appears. It's now fixed by rinsing in water, at least in early years, until they figured out a uh, fixer. Uh, but uh, so there's the process. This is how that works. So it's, it, it's that set of, what's that? I said healthy. 
healthy, healthy, yeah. So, you know, that process of making the daguerreotype is, is how that works. So, on the, on the Cincinnati uh, panorama, Jeff, how yes. long would they have had to expose that? How do they determine the amount of exposure time on something like that? So how do they determine exposure time? This is a great question. Light meters, the way we know light meters, um, and I'll, I'll come back and play this video again here in a second. The way we know light meters, those light meters didn't come into existence until the 1920s, 1930s. So prior to that time, the only light meter was, you know, how much light is there? an experiential light meter. How much light is there? The last exposure I made, did that seem to be about right at 20 seconds? If not, make more light, make less light. At some point, light meters uh, that were called extinction meters uh, came into, uh, into being. And these extinction meters were, um, they're, they're, the, the way they worked was that they had a diaphragm that you would close down as you were looking through them. So it was just like a tube that you looked through and you closed down the diaphragm. And when you finally closed it down to where you couldn't see anything, that would then relate to a sort of slide rule scale on the side of the, of the meter that would indicate an approximate exposure. But light-sensitive light meters, like we know where there's you know, some sort of sensor that's responding to the volume of light, is something that didn't exist for almost 100 years after the invention of the doctor. So it's, most of the time, it's completely a, a wild guess. You know, an experiential wild guess. I remember I forgot to plug in audio. So we'll come back and see this guy again. Kind of like Moonrise Hernandez. I think this will play up there. Hmm? Why is that not playing there? It should play. Oh, technology. So I'll just sort of narrate alongside here. So this is a contemporary daguerreotype photographer making an exposure. So he says, you know, I'll bring in a headstand. told us that the exposure is going to be 40 seconds. They don't let us make us wait the full 40 seconds. Puts the dark slide back in and then goes into the dark room and processes the image. One of the questions that I get all the time is, well, nobody does this anymore, do they? You know, lots of people do. Uh, 19th century processes of all sorts have experienced a tremendous resurgence in the last, especially the last 20 years, but really especially the last 10. Uh, and we have a course in the program called Alternative Photographic Processes that covers many of those processes, not the daguerreotype, but Deb? At the 2014 Sundance Film Festival, they took pictures of all the actors and actresses there using tintype, they made tintype photographs using some kind of Palladian. So tintype, remember, and we, we'll look at some tintypes. This is a tintype right here, is wet plate collodion on top of a piece of black metal. And in fact, I just saw probably one of those tintypes 
the other day, uh, a tintype of Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, was, you know, one of the one of the many pictures I saw of, of him after his did untimely you that, did you read that blog posting? Untimely demise. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, it was. It was a good blog I post. I think Brad Pitt had a daguerreotype done for him for some sort of cover. Uh, yeah, it, we, we'll actually look at that daguerreotype. Brad cool. Pitt, Chuck Close did a uh, did a daguerreotype of Brad Pitt that appeared on the cover of W magazine. So, so these processes are still there, right? You know, they're still out there. And of course, I come back to this image because for me, it's one of those images that sort of touches me in a in a way that I find really interesting and uh, kind of fascinating on a, on a number of levels, uh, both from the point of view of you know what it's telling us about how people value photography, but also from the the sort of you know personal or romantic point of view of how I perceive. Uh, this, this family uh, in this way. So, um, so let's, uh, let's turn our attention to these guys, Southworth and Hawes. Joanne. I just have a quick question. Sure. On, uh, the gentleman who was doing the, the modern day daguerreotype, yes. how is he processing that? He's certainly not using mercury. That's yes. Yes. Oh. Just a lot more carefully than the 19th century <laughs> daguerreotype. He probably wears gloves and so, stuff. So, yeah. Um, you know, just under a under a, a very tightly controlled vet hood and you know all that stuff. So um, yeah, but it, the properly done, it's done. There there is a newer modern way to do it that doesn't involve mercury, but the the purists uh, believe probably correctly that the that the better quality uh, happens with the the process that Daguerre announced. And How hard is it to buy mercury? It's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> He said, with a impish look on his face. Uh, no, I don't know. Uh, you know, I I would imagine, you know, slightly difficult, but not impossible. So, so uh, one of the things that I that I want to just pause before we start talking about this duo of Southworth and Hawes is I want to pause and say, you know, that that. What we did the last two weeks was really this sort of race, right? You know, and I really didn't intend you to get all of the details of things. It wasn't where I was headed with that. Um, and now we get a chance to kind of look at things in some more detail and spend a little bit more time on some of these ideas. Uh, and one of the things I want you to think about is how photography is inherently a time-bound process. Time-bound. Uh, every photograph is frozen in its unique fragment of the past. Every photograph, meaning every one that you took earlier today or yesterday or the day before, is frozen in its own unique fragment of the past. The symbolism of every photograph is always of its time and its place. And the meaning of the photograph is dependent upon the viewer's ability to bridge a visual gap, to bridge a gap to bridge that gap between now and whenever that past was. The past might have been yesterday, or it might have been 140 or 150 or 160 years ago. And some photographs do a better job of reaching out to us from their past position, and some do a little bit less good job. What's required on our part is that we reach backward in time, that we kind of make that reach backward in time to be able to connect with these pictures in a way that people might have connected with them in their time, in the photograph that, that 
photographs that we'll look at here, um, or at least to understand what their time at least might have partly been, been like. So what I'm suggesting is that for you know, most of our time together, we're going to have to bring ourselves to the photographs. Sometimes the photographs will bring themselves to us, but we have to kind of make that other effort of, from our side uh, to kind of come back into the past for some of these pictures. And it's difficult for <coughs> people like us who are steeped in a camera culture to fully understand the novelty <coughs> of a photograph at all. To the average inhabitant of the 19th century, uh, pictures of people, as we've seen, were pictures of people who were wealthy, who were well-to-do, who were noble in some way. And what was really interesting was that with the advent of photography, with the advent of the daguerreotype, and the competition that eventually brought the price of this medium down, what happened was that people were able to, for the first time in history, hold a replica of some member of their family or someone that they knew and loved in their hand. It was really the first time that anybody had really been able to do that. And uh, the idea that every feature and every hair and everything was there exactly as the camera had seen it uh, is an important consideration for us as we kind of move forward today especially. And today especially, try to imagine, if you can, seeing the first photograph that was ever made of you trying to think about what that, you know, that first photograph uh, of you. And for all of us in the room, everybody in the room, that happened when we were young. You know, most of us, it happened when we were infants, before we could even recognize that, there, that it was a picture or anything else, right? Um, but now, try to imagine seeing that first photograph of you right now, today, the way you are today, the way you look today, You've never seen a photograph of yourself before. And now, suddenly, here in your hand is a picture of you. And what I want you to do is think about the fact that these people whose photographs we'll look at were usually having that experience. Whatever age they are, they were looking at the first photograph, the first sort of image of themselves that wasn't a fleeting image in a mirror, but a frozen image in a picture. The first time that they'd ever seen that. And if you could imagine doing that for yourself right now, whatever age you are and whatever situation you're in, right now, today, imagine what that would be like. So uh, a lot of times uh, we, we kind of look at these pictures and we kind of laugh because of the way in which these people hold their bodies. And then we remember that one of the reasons they're holding their bodies like that is they have to sit still for a minute or so. And we also may look at these pictures and sort of think of these people as being not terribly interesting because they all look a little stiff and a little formal. Hello? But we have to remember two things about that. One, it's hard to hold still for a long time and hold a smile. That's one. But the other is, if you could imagine you people here in this room who have had your photograph made hundreds if not thousands of times in your lifetime. Imagine what face you would give a picture if it was the only one you were going to have made. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine what face you would show. What would you look like? How would you hold yourself? How would you dress? How would you present yourself? If you knew that it was unlikely, because you'd saved up for several months to be able to afford one, 
that you would have another photograph taken within your lifetime or maybe within at least a decade. So begin to think about that as we kind of begin to look at uh, this uh, pair of photographers, Southworth and Hawes. Southworth and Hawes, Boston daguerreotype photographers uh, whose objective was to stress quality over quantity. Many of these daguerreotype studios that had sprung up in the 1840s all across the world, especially in America, many of these daguerreotype studios uh, were stressing the idea of getting people in and out as fast as they could. They'd have a room full of people polishing plates. They'd have a room full of people fuming the plates. They'd have several photographers, maybe a dozen or more photographers set up with stations. People would come in. They'd be told to stand on a mark. They'd be told to hand on a put their hand on this thing and the other hand in their pocket, their picture would be made, the next person would come in, the next plate would be brought, etc., etc. A production line kind of a thing. Southworth and Hawes had a different sort of strategy of what they were, what they were up to and what they were trying to accomplish. Uh, and, you know, something that, that, uh, uh, that I, I want to kind of share with you are a couple of ideas about the way in which people thought about portraiture Prior to, uh, prior to the sort of uh, advent of the, 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 the mass quantity of daguerreotypes uh, and about how the mass quantity of daguerreotypes had begun to change people's ideas about what it is that they were doing. So the author T.S. Arthur wrote in 1846, if our children and children's children to the third and fourth generation are not in possession of portraits of their ancestors, it will be no fault of the daguerreotypists of the present day. For, verily, they are limning, and there's a word I didn't know until I looked it up, they are limning, it's there on your sheet today, limning faces at a rate that promises soon to make every man's house a daguerrean gallery. In our great cities, a daguerreotypist is to be found in almost every square, and there is scarcely a county in any state that has not one or more of these industrious individuals busy at work catching the shadow before the substance fades away. Catching the shadow before the substance fades away, before you're dead, right? Before you're dead. It's hard to find a man who has not the shadowy faces of his wife and children done up in purple Morocco and velvet among his household treasures, meaning wearing their finest clothes. Another thing that I'll share with you here is a letter written from Sheffield, Massachusetts by a woman named Fanny Boardman who wrote to her husband, who'd gone off uh, to San Francisco to seek his fortune in the gold rush. I received your letter Saturday evening, she writes, and that relieved me a good deal, although I read it over three times and then cried for an hour as hard as I could. But my dear, it was not at anything in the letter that I cried, but because I knew then that you was really gone. I slept with, it, uh, slept with it under my head for a week, and I read it every night before I went to sleep. You may say this was very foolish in me to cry and feel so bad. Perhaps it was. But remember that your letters, your daguerreotype, and my tears are the only consolation I can have. Your letters, your daguerreotype, and my tears are the only consolation I can have. So people put a lot of stock in these images. It wasn't just sort of something that just happened and, you know, it wasn't sort of the way in which we contemplate images today with a fraction of a second, maybe even less uh, for many pictures that we see. 
And as with a lot of new businesses, there was a tremendous difference in the way in which some people sort of worked through the process of doing daguerreotype photography. As I mentioned, some businesses were very production line oriented and Southworth and Hawes were not. Uh, their idea was that what they wanted to do was stress quality rather than speed. And what they defined quality as was that they said that quality was allowing the inner man to be pictured through a careful study of the inner man's outer features. Sort of what Deb was referring to a little bit, right, when she was talking about what daguerreotype portraiture or what portraiture was all about. The inner man being pictured through a careful study of his outer features. So I had read that about Southworth and Hawes, and then I happened upon Southworth and Hawes' photograph of this guy, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Does anybody remember who Emerson was? Ralph Waldo Emerson? Think back, in my case, freshman high school English class. He was a writer. Does anybody remember the, the sort of group of people that, you know, loosely knit group of people that Emerson belonged to along with his compatriot Henry David Thoreau? Remember who these guys were? The Transcendentalists. The Transcendentalists. Remember these guys? You probably studied them at least someplace in your high school world. The Transcendentalists were a group of literary, philosophical, religious truth seekers whose interest was in trying to figure out how to live correctly by thinking about the way the world was organized. How the world was organized, what the world looked like. So Ralph Waldo Emerson was perhaps one of the most well-known of these transcendentalist thinkers. And then there's also Henry David Thoreau. Let me give you a couple of words from them. Here's Ralph Waldo Emerson saying, it is things which are emblematic. Every natural fact in the world is a symbol of some spiritual fact. Every appearance in nature corresponds to some state of the mind. And that state of the mind can only be described by presenting that natural appearance as its picture. And while we don't have a Southworth and Hawes photograph of Henry David Thoreau, Thoreau, another transcendentalist, producing these words and ideas at exactly the same time that Southworth and Hawes are working. Thoreau wrote, I wish to meet the facts of life, the vital facts, which are the phenomena or actuality that God's meant to show us face to face. He wants the facts. Seems like they are both pretty well suited to the medium of photography. But what's really fascinating to me here is how very carefully and very closely, their ideas seem to mirror what Southworth and Hawes are doing. And it's really fascinating to me that these two things kind of show up as we continue to work through some of the photographs that Southworth and Hawes made, that they show up in these two different worlds. I mean, here are Emerson and Thoreau and the rest of the transcendentalists trying to figure out how to live a better spiritual, physical existence by carefully examining the world around them. And Southworth and Hawes trying to figure out how to make a living by carefully examining the inner features of a person. The inner features of a person. 
And I think what we're doing, or we're seeing rather, is an attempt by a number of people, the Transcendentalists and Southworth and Hawes and probably lots of other folks, is we're seeing them trying to come up with a way to define our own cultural nationalism, our own cultural character. Who were we here in America? Who were we? I mean, here we were having come from many, many different countries, many, many different cultures. We didn't have the kind of long-standing history of a Germany or an England or a France. We didn't have the kind of cultural identity that Italians or Swedes or Costa Ricans had. All we had was this new thing that we had created, and we weren't really sure who we were as, as a culture in a way. So Thoreau wrote, we know men through their eyes. We know men through their eyes. You might say that the eye was always original and unlike another. It is the feature of the individual, not of the family. In twins, still different. All a man's privacy is in his eye, and its expression he cannot alter any more than he can alter his character. So long as we look a man in the eye, it seems to rule all the other features and make them too original. When I have mistaken one person for another, observing only his form and the way he carries himself, and other inferior features, the unlikeliness seemed of the least consequence. But when I caught his eye, all my doubts were removed, and it seemed to pervade every feature. A man's eyes. Emerson wrote, Do not wonder at the fair landscape, but at the necessity of beauty under which the universe is. All is and must be pictorial, says Emerson. Eyes make eye marks, and now and then somebody discovers and makes ado about some special picture. So again, what I'm thinking here is that all of these ideas are coming about just you know, 60 or so years after America has won its freedom from England. And that during that time period, we're in the middle of a tremendous change all over the world, but also, more importantly, a tremendous change in this new country that was here. And this affirmation for the sense of character, the sense of the American self in the myriad faces of these people who sit before the camera uh, were uh, really an important part of helping to establish the idea that we might have in some way, some unifying trait. A second reason I think has to be seen in the transformation that the country was undergoing from a primarily agricultural country to one that was much more based in industry. The transition we still sort of are in the middle of or at the end of or somewhere around uh, some of that part of transition of agriculture to technological culture. And the camera was, to many 19th century Americans, uh, just another machine, but it was a significant machine because it operated with a different deal. And the deal was is that the camera could do something for individual people, could do something for individual people. So one of the things that I, that I like to point out here when we look at some of these is those of you who photographed in the studio, and I, there aren't probably that many of you, but I know that there are some, you have to remember that what we're looking at are pictures that are made without the advent of electric light. They're all made with daylight. Here's this Reverend William Smithell photographed so that his remarkably 
thick and luxuriant dark hair, appears against a white background, and his beautiful white ministerial robes appear at least in part against a dark background. And that dark and light background was made through the use of curtains that blocked off light to certain parts of the background and allowed light on other parts of the background. Here's a guy that we all got to campus today because we got, got here because of him, at least in part. Charles Goodyear figured out how to vulcanize rubber so the tires lasted more than a few days at a time. What I'm hoping you're noticing as we go along through some of these pictures is that especially compared to many daguerreotypes that you may have seen on the internet or in books, that many of these are extraordinarily beautiful. Quality of light is really beautiful. And think about this. If the exposure is going to be 60 seconds long, what would be more important, quantity of light or quality of light? Generally, quantity. Right? I mean, you're going to try and get as much light on your subject as possible, and yet, oftentimes, the quality of the light in these pictures is so beautiful, so lovely in terms of where shadows are cast. And again, all doing this with skylights and curtains. Another thing that we have to think about as we look at these pictures is the response of the viewer to the daguerreotype. The daguerreotype was generally small. These pictures I have up here are about the size that most daguerreotypes were. There were some that were a little bit bigger, up to maybe about 7 by 9 or so, but never really any bigger than that, and it was rare to see one that large uh, because they were much more complicated to make. So the daguerreotype's small size uh, and the fact that the image was a unique and one-of-a-kind picture made the viewer's response to the picture a predominantly individual response. One of the things we'll discover when we look at these daguerreotypes up here is that it's really hard for two people to look at a daguerreotype at the same time. It's really very much a kind of one-on-one -on -one experience. And that one-on-one -on -one experience comes through, I think, in some of these pictures. Another subtlety that was not lost on the 19th century viewer, and we shouldn't uh, fail to mention here, is the fact that the daguerreotype was made really deliberately very deliberate pictures. They're not snapshot pictures. They're not pictures made on the spur of the moment. In order to get the daguerreotype to work, the subject had to be posed. They had to be in front of the camera at the right you know, time. And then somebody had to go get a plate and put the plate in the back of the camera after the camera's been focused. Well, if the person moves back and forth, from the very careful focus, and you can see in a lot of these pictures, you can see how, you know, this back shoulder is out of focus. His face is in focus. The depth of field is very shallow. Makes sense, right? You want the exposure to be as short as possible, so you're going to use a large lens opening to make that possible. So the person has to stay still from the moment that the picture is composed until the moment that the lens cap is placed back on the camera. A long period of time. Daniel Webster, looking very much like what we hear about him in terms of his stern nature. So the casual snapshot is not possible. And what we're looking at here when we look at these pictures is a collaboration. A collaboration. A knowing sitter collaborating with a purposeful cameraman 
to arrive at what is ultimately a mutually agreeable set of moments. A mutually agreeable set of moments where they could agree that what's going to happen now is this exposure which will allow them uh, to be recorded in this way. And one of the other things that I like to point out here is how individual these images are. A lot of daguerreotype studios, and in fact some of the other daguerreotype, some of the other portraits I have up here, you'll see that the same background is used. Subject comes in, is told to stand on the X, is told to hang on to the podium, exposure is done, they move the next person in, one after the other after the other. But you can see that what's happening here is that Southworth and Hawes are paying particular attention to a wide variety of things. This woman is wearing this extraordinarily beautiful lace headdress, and she's been posed against a black background so as to make sure that that lace is displayed uh, the most beautifully that it can be. And then there's this thing, this multiple portrait. First of all, we've got a split background so that we can see, you know, the, the beautiful pale skin that she has against dark. And then her remarkably beautiful hairstyle against white. white. Was that done with smoke and mirrors, or is that each one an individual pose? Each one an individual daguerreotype. Ooh. A central daguerreotype that is larger, and then a series of other daguerreotypes around the edge. So what do you suppose is going on here? Like, what's up with this picture, and why does it look like that? First of all, she has a lot of money. Southworth and Oz never charged less than $5 for a daguerreotype portrait when many studios were charging 50 cents or even a quarter for a two-at-a-time shot with a two-lens camera. The daguerreotypes at Southworth and Oz, who positioned themselves as the best daguerreotype portraitists on the eastern seaboard, that was their sort of goal, only, they never charged less than $5. Pretty expensive. So what is this? It's the range of emotions and a range more than just that snapshot snapshot of their personality. Would, to me, that's what like I was going to say. A, a coming out? Cart the visit. Yeah, cart. What did, I, I didn't hear what you said. I said she's trying to find her good side. She's trying to find <laughs> her good side. So what's most remarkable about her in this picture? Her hair. Her hair. Is it for a hair salon? So what's she doing? <laughs> Showing She's showing it off. She's doing a little star turn, you know? Check me out. Check me out. This is the coolest thing. Everybody else is going to be really jealous of this hairstyle, right? That's all she's doing. She's really showing us how beautiful this modern hairstyle that she has is. And here's this gorgeous young woman wearing an incredible lace shawl. I mean, just like to think about the hundreds of hours that were involved in making this piece of lace is, you know, sort of beyond the pale in some way. But think about how they solved the problem of photographing her. They posed her against a background that is lit with enough light so that we can see this lace. Is that like a painted background of like in the background, sort of looks like it's got some sort of an indication of a landscape or something really back there. No, no, okay. no, they're inside. The only stairs. way that they could control what was going on was to be inside. Yeah, probably there was. You know, most of these were were set into oval 
masks. So what we're seeing here is just the edge of the oval, I think. Then there's this one. I'd like to follow that one with this one. This is like sort of a probably a character study. It's probably somebody that they found and brought in off the off the streets or something, you know. How much did she have to pay? Ten? Probably not. Oh, there you go. So would they be considered the first um, studio, artistic studio? That's, a, that's such an interesting question because I don't know that I've ever thought about it that way. What, and and are, you, are you sort of saying, can they be considered the first artistic studio as opposed to a studio that was, uh, you know, just decidedly function as a, functioning as a commercial studio? I don't know if the first, but certainly one of the, one of the first. Uh, and and I'll, I'll kind of give you uh, a, a, little, a little nugget from uh, Southworth himself that might help answer that question. He said, what is to be done is, to, is obliged to be done carefully. The whole character of the sitter is to be read at first sight, the whole likeness. And I shall see it as it will appear when finished in each and all its details. And in their unity and combination. It should be the aim of the artist photographer, the artist photographer, to produce in likeness the best possible character and the finest expression of which that particular face could ever have been capable. Wow, that's a pretty, you know, that's a pretty lofty goal, you know? It should be the aim of the artist photographer to produce in likeness the best possible character and the finest expression of which that particular face could ever have been capable. Pretty remarkable, right? And what's in her hand? Looks like a bag, purse, maybe some sort. I'm not sure if it was shoes or. Yeah. Looks like a bag. So then there's this picture. I I really find this picture to be one of the one of the ones that I that I find most remarkable. And and I I find it remarkable because. I see Southworth and Hawes as they individually approach each subject as a problem to solve, you know, trying to solve a problem. So what are we, what's remarkable about this woman? The partner hair is pretty amazing, you know. The hairstyle in itself is, is sort of you know, pretty dramatic in some way, right? Especially perhaps for its era. I feel like her nose is big. She's got a big nose. Like, I feel like it's ginormous. She's got a big nose. Now, let's think about this from a, from a completely pragmatic point of view. When called upon to photograph somebody with a big nose, imagine what happens if Southworth and Hawes have her pose a little off to the left or a little off to the right. So they're looking at her straight on from a little bit above, so as to kind of make the nose a little less prominent. So I think it's right. I think she does have a big nose, but I think they're trying to figure out how to call attention to a lot of other stuff that isn't really her nose. I feel like they did. I love this this woman, Mrs. James Vincent. Somehow she just seems so pleasant, you know. She's one of the few people who kind of have a, an expression on her face that indicates a kind of 
happiness or something. something else. Yeah, like she's just uh, she's just been up to something. And of course, group portraits. Anybody who's ever shot a group portrait, you know, never never easy, especially when small children are involved. Now, sort of take that forward to getting everybody evenly lit by window light and making sure that the kids don't move during the minute-long exposure. <laughs> then there's this one, and I'm not really sure what's going on here, but, you know, she's been posed on what seems to be a facsimile of an Arctic ice flow. My guess is that she might be sort of suggesting that she's like a, uh, you know, a character in some sort of story that took place in that, in that kind of a, an environment, so looking forlorn, like, like literary or something. Yeah, religious or literary. Yeah, so I think she's playing a role in some way. All these group portraits are amazing. Terrific compositions of groups. Crazy kid stuff. So, you know, the beautiful triangular composition here in this portrait of these three women. And what's really great when you look at these is how they really are individual. You're not really looking at sort of one pose for, you know, this is our group of three pose. This is our group of four pose. This is our single person pose. Uh, they're really individually treating everything. And there is some motion blur, especially in some of these pictures, you know, where Babies. it's a picture of a baby and, you know, they can't, uh, they can't hold terribly still. There's a little bit of motion blur. This one of a kind of Lolita-like kind of thing going on there. But look at the dramatic lighting. Look at where the lighting is coming from. Butterfly lighting, right? But... When you think about that, and you think about how you would do butterfly lighting, now sort of extrapolate that to a 19th century reality. And some great pictures of these small children. And then there's this. Southworth said, the artist is often required to transfer to canvas, paper, or marble the living features after the pulse has ceased to beat. Much oftener is the daguerreotypist called to copy what life has left. Sometimes he may represent balmy sleep, but too frequently will the last enemy have marked its victim that the picture cannot be contemplated with satisfaction. But even in such cases, an artist may be able to make a faithful likeness under the worst and most forbidding of circumstances. As a general rule, let the artist be sent for as soon as is practicable, and let his suggestions be considered and followed in most cases, and not more than an hour will be required to perform the whole task and leave all as well, perhaps better than when he commenced. With confidence and care, the drapery and the posture of death will not be first seen and most forcible in the light. So oftentimes these are sort of troubling to people because generally speaking the photographs that we hold dear of our 
departed friends and family are pictures of them when they were living. But if in the previous picture the grandmother had never had her daguerreotype made, or this child was too young to have had a daguerreotype made, being able to have that likeness, to hold that likeness for as long as you need, is something that had tremendous value. People still do it, and it's much more prevalent in other cultures than it is in our American culture, most certainly. So, yeah, you definitely want to do it before they get to the funeral home. So, oftentimes the first call was, you know, send for the daguerreotypist, and then the undertaker after that. So, so a question I have is: Is this photograph any different from these? Now, do we, as we think about what portrait photography is, with portrait photography, I think one of the things that we're all trying to do is deny time. Trying to deny time. Yeah. What we want is some power, some capability over time's passage. The ability to have things and maybe ourselves remain as they once were, even as our time on Earth rushes forward. So. Uh, when I look at, you know, pictures of, you know, people who we know that the picture is 25 years old and that those people probably don't live anymore, or when we see a picture on a gravestone, or when we see, you know, this picture of the baby's bronze shoes and the, and the portrait of the child, uh, what we're really doing is, is trying to do that, that sort of you know, preserving of that passage of time. So... I find that to be a, a sort of interesting way of looking at uh, those post-mortem pictures, which is what those are usually referred to, post-mortem. So uh, the calotype, the calotype, also known as the Talbot type or Talbot type as we learned, right? <coughs> known as the Talbot type because initially when Talbot <coughs> heard about Daguerre's announcement of the invention of photography in Paris, and said, wait a second, I've been doing these same kinds of experiments myself, and rushed to get his experiments together and deliver his results to the British Academy of Science. He called it the Talbot type, because Daguerre had called his the Daguerreotype, but then ultimately he became a little more humble and called it the Calotype, or beautiful picture, beautiful thing. It was a paper negative, paper positive process, and we've sort of talked about this, so I won't dwell on it too much, but the big advantage was that it was reproducible, but its disadvantage was that it wasn't very sharply detailed because you're taking a piece of paper that's your negative, <coughs> printing through it to another piece of paper that has been sensitized with silver and salt, and the fibers of that paper will sort of diminish or diminish the quality uh, of uh, of the original negative. I forgot to pass this around, I'm sorry. Pass around the sign-in sheet there. So. so it's reproducible, but wasn't very sharply detailed. Early exposures were pretty long, 8 to 12 minutes. Uh, at some point, Talbot discovered that development in gallic acid, that's what he called it, development, would amplify a weak light signal. So he discovered that what he could do was take this uh, underexposed negative, and by putting it into this gallic acid 
uh, chemical, he could amplify a weak light signal and create a, a, a better image with a shorter exposure. And that made the process slow, but still manageable. Still manageable. So, kind of, uh, five minutes, five minutes-ish. So, here's an example of Bifox Talbot of a negative and a positive transformation. There's a couple of things that I like to sort of point out about this. Uh, one is that you can see where he's brushing the emulsion onto the piece of paper here. That's what that sort of mottled edge is. Because he's soaking the piece of paper in salt water to make it impregnated with salt. And then he's taking salt or silver uh, nitrate and painting it over the surface of the piece of paper, creating silver salt. Silver salt, right? So the other thing is that he's using paper that isn't any kind of special paper. I mean, we sort of think, well, what kind of paper, you know, is he using? He's just using writing paper, and you can see the watermark of the writing paper. So it's the same kind of writing paper that he might have written a letter to his mother on, or you know, some other some other uh, uh, piece of of writing. So again, the process for Fox Talbot goes like this: He takes a piece of of writing paper, he soaks it in salt water, pulls it out, hangs it up to dry. If you touched your tongue to the piece of paper, it would be salty. It's a very salty piece of paper, heavily salted. Once that piece of paper is dry, he takes this silver nitrate material, paints it over the top of the piece of paper in the dark, because the silver nitrate is light sensitive. But combining the silver nitrate with chloride, salt, means that the picture is now or this, the piece of paper is now light sensitive, right? So, uh, everybody get that? Except for Deb. Cool. We didn't miss you. All right. So, once that piece of paper has been coated over with this silver nitrate, it's again allowed to dry in the dark. Then the piece of paper is placed in the back of the camera using that same kind of little holder like we saw in that little video piece. Once it's placed into that little holder, it's placed into the back of the camera. The dark slide is removed, the lens cap is removed, the exposure is made, lens cap put back on, dark slide put back in, the piece of paper is taken, he figures out this gallic acid to develop. Remember that he had the friend who was Sir John Herschel, who comes up with the chemical fixer that removes the unexposed silver salts from the piece of paper allowing the piece of paper to be chemically inert or insensitive to light, rather. Then it's washed, and now he has a tonally reversed image, a negative. The whole process of coating another piece of paper is done. Salt, dry, paint it with silver nitrate, dry. Place the <coughs> negative in contact with the piece of paper. Sometimes he would oil or wax the piece of paper. If you've ever seen what happens when you get, you know, like cooking oil on a piece of newspaper, it kind of becomes translucent or wax on a piece of paper. It becomes a little more translucent. So waxing or oiling the piece of negative would help it to become a little bit more translucent, a little less uh, opaque, uh, a little more transparent rather, a little less uh, opaque. And then those that sandwich of negative and newly sensitized piece of paper placed out into the sun so that light could fall down and where there was dark in the original negative, 
where there's you know thin areas or unexposed areas here, it becomes heavily exposed here. So that transformation from negative to positive. Uh, and any of you who've worked in the traditional darkroom, you know, you get that, right? You know, the transformation from negative to positive in the traditional darkroom is makes understanding what's going on here a thousand times, ten thousand times easier, right? Because you get what's going on. All right. So uh, and then you know it's washed and, and dried and displayed so that it can be uh, can be seen. So this process, and again, the, the the fascinating thing about the fact that Talbot was working on this stuff, he'd been trying to figure it out. He hears about Daguerre's experiments. He rushes to kind of figure out how to how to get his experiments out there in the world. Uh, Daguerre announced earlier, Daguerre's pictures are more highly detailed and sharper. But in Fox Talbot's process is this amazing multiplication of a single person's vision. And I really find it to be one of the most interesting things about the invention of the history of the invention of the medium that what we're seeing is the two things that we value coming from two different places. So could you reuse that paper negative? Yeah, absolutely. So you could take that paper negative and make 100 copies or 5 or 5,000. So is that why it wasn't as you can make as many prints from the negative as you want, and they would all be the same quality as the first one. You know, so that and that. The type of paper that he was doing it on, there was part that I read because he was just using ordinary writing paper. It didn't allow for the detail. Correct, because it was you know if you think about it, any kind of paper, if you're going to try and you know see through it, it's hard to do. And really, that's what you're trying to do. And so the fibers of the paper kind of obliterated some of the detail. What was the paper that the image was printed on? Same, same paper. It was the same paper? Same paper. It's just the same paper. It's the same sensitizer. And it's just the transformation, you know, where lots of light hit, it turned the material dark. Where little light hit, it didn't make much difference. Now you take that. This is, you know, exactly why we have students still studying black and white darkroom stuff, right? Because now you kind of get, those of you who've been in the darkroom, get that where lots of light is coming through this transparent area of the negative, it's going to make lots of dark here. Where very little light is coming through, where it's blocking lots of light, stays more close to the paper color, or the paper tone. All right? All right. So, very quickly to look at this other duo, we'll spend a ton of time with them, but it's interesting to see how uh, this other duo that was using calotype as a material uh, are somewhat similar in some ways. I mean, they're in about the same time period that Southworth and Hawes were, but they were using uh, calotype instead of the daguerreotype. And, and uh, uh, the idea that the calotype was something that was used, and it was used quite a lot. You know, there was really uh, nothing wrong with it other than the fact that people were fascinated by the detail of the daguerreotype. So what we have are Hill and Adamson, uh, David Octavius Hill and Robert Adamson. And they were both Scottish. And it's also interesting, it's sort of one of the reasons that I, that I include them, partly because their pictures are kind of cool, but also 
because they represent these two sides of photography. The two sides that we've already seen happening over and over and over again, chemistry or science and art. So Hill was a painter, Adamson was a chemist. They collaborated together to arrive at photographic images uh, that uh, uh, were really pretty, pretty interesting. They collaborated from uh, uh, 1842 uh, through 1848 when Adamson died at the uh, tender age of 27. Uh, Hill planned on using photography as an aid to painting. Hill, this painter, was, had been commissioned to make a very large painting of a huge number of uh, Scottish noblemen. And he figured, you know, it would be a lot easier to paint these guys if I could have a photograph of them then I wouldn't have to have them all come in one after the other. I could just, you know, take their heads and paint each one uh, from the photograph. And so they began collaborating on this process, each man providing an element that was missing in the other from the chemical side of things and the art uh, side of things. And, and in fact, they never finished all of the photographs of these uh, uh, Scottish noblemen, uh, but what they did do was make a pretty interesting series of, of images. And these are not the most perfect reproductions in the world. Uh, they're a little yellower than you might see uh, in reality if you were looking at the real print. Uh, but what's really interesting about them is how they are in some ways more motivated by the artistic impulse than by the idea of the portrait impulse. You know, they're much more sort of, you know, evocative about an idea, less about who the, who the portrait subject is. You know, we're looking at the, the, the kid not as, you know, Billy, but rather as, you know, the, the fisherman's assistant or whatever it is that he is. Uh, so uh, we can also see something else that's really interesting. Oftentimes in the 19th century, one of the things that people would do was to use massive reflectors like either a giant like mirror, like a full-length mirror that you'd have in your room or something, to reflect a lot of light into the subject's eyes, uh, to you know get rid of the, the shadows and so forth. And maybe not exactly in this picture, but in a lot of Southworth and Hawes pictures, you kind of see people a little squinty away from the bright light that they were trying to uh, shine on their subjects to give them a, a better quality and less contrast between the light and, and the dark. So, um, so there are a number of people who use the calotype process to great effect, uh, but in general, the calotype wasn't ever as popular as the daguerreotype. Uh, and part of that was the quality issue. Uh, part of it probably had at least, at least something to do with uh, uh, the sort of general strategy of, of uh, engagement that happened between France and England over the course of centuries, right? They're not still terribly fond of each other and haven't been for a long, long time. So, so as we kind of leave the, uh, at least part of the 19th century behind, we'll kind of start off in the 19th century and see if we can figure out if era makes a difference, if era makes a difference. So looking at some other portraits and seeing does, you know, does, does the time in which the picture is made make some sort of a difference. So we'll start off with Julia Margaret Cameron. 
uh, a 19th century photographer, and we'll look at her a couple more times before we're done this semester. But really an interesting photographer, coming about in the late 1860s and the 1870s, and kind of changing the way people thought about portrait photography. Because if we think about all the portraits we've looked at so far, almost all of them were from the waist up, or from the knees up, or the feet up, maybe a few of them that were like chest up, but rarely do you have something like this picture of Sir John Herschel, looking very much the mad scientist in this picture, right? You know, so he's the guy, remember, who invented the term negative, who invented the term positive to describe the opposite of a negative, and who gave us the word photography, photos graphos, light writing. And you know, he was an acquaintance of Cameron. He was also an acquaintance of Fox Talbot. Sort of an interesting thing that this world didn't seem to be terribly large, especially in, from country to country. People seem to kind of know one another quite well. So Cameron, who was given a camera uh, by her family when she was 48 years old, uh, as something to kind of keep her occupied as an empty nester, uh, begins to make photographs of the people she knows, who happen in some cases to be prominent scientists, or her niece here, Julia Jackson, uh, and uh, begins to make photographs that sort of transcend the idea of what portraits had been prior to that time, which really had as much to do with this head, you know, noble head, close-up image uh, as, as anything. So, and then another uh, person in uh, Cameron's world is Alfred Lord Tennyson. So Cameron, a woman of not tremendous means, but fairly high social standing, uh, and you know, traveled in the in the circle of the literary people of the of of, the, of her time period. So the late 1860s through the 1870s, and on a little bit into the 1880s. The other thing that's interesting about Cameron is that it's with her that we begin to get portraits that are intended as something perhaps else other than portraits, and titles that indicate that. So rather than telling us that this is Ellen, she's saying it is sadness. And using titles to kind of create uh, an emotional valence in some way. So now leaving the 19th century and moving on into the 20th century, Paul Strand. We looked at Strand's work briefly last week. And Strand, who seemed to just place his subject square in front of the camera, not always, but often, having them confront the camera in a, in a rather uh, positive, profound way, really you know, staring through the lens of the camera in some way. Here's Mr. Bennett. And also take a look at how he's using where the subject is photographed to not necessarily inform us about who the subject is, but in some ways tell us about what the subject is. That the weathered skin of Mr. Bennett and the weathered barn wood behind him kind of has an interesting combination of, of, of things. Oops, didn't mean to go past that. There we go. And this, uh, another Paul Strand photograph uh, called Family Luzara, Italy. One of my favorite photographs, one of my favorite photographs, this is one of my desert island photographs. You know, periodically I'll, I'll show you something that would be one of my, you know, if I were going to be stranded on a desert island, 
what photographs would I like to have with me that would kind of sustain me and give me you know, something to look at every day. So here's a photograph that has as much to do with the social situation and the sort of questions that it asks and doesn't quite answer. You know, the sons, the mother, where's the father? How big is the house? We know that. We, at least we know how big it is looking through it, have some sense of what's on the other side of it. I love the way that this guy is leaning up against the side of the photograph as a sort of prop, the way the bicycle is used, the pose of his feet. All of the elements in this picture and the fact that there's really only one person looking directly at us, and that's the mother. Everybody else is looking off in some other spot, and it begins to make you wonder what they're looking at. Why do they all have bare feet, too? No, the one has sandals, too. And the mom has shoes. shoes. She's wearing shoes. He's wearing some sandals. So, so why are they? Why are, do they have bare feet? Perhaps speaks at least at, at least in part to their, you know, to, to their economic status, right? This is the 1950s, post-war Italy. So then, Joseph Karsh, Karsh, from Ottawa, Canada, uh, who is known for uh, uh, portraits of the sort of most important people of his time. Uh, photographing here from the 1940s, really longer than the 1960s, but the, the pictures that he made between the 40s and the 60s are probably his best known photographs. And certainly one of his very best known photographs is this one of Winston Churchill. So first let's find out who Churchill was. Who was Winston Churchill? Prime Minister, Prime Minister of England, England during World War, II. World War II. And sort of suggested by many people to be the sort of driving force as to how England was able to survive the Blitzkrieg, uh, his sort of sturdy st status, his uh, stiff upper lip as an Englishman, and his resolve to uh, never, never, never give up was really the sort of part and parcel of the whole way in which uh, the, the English approached uh, this wartime period. So Churchill himself was often known as the bulldog. And you can kind of see it in his face here. So here's Karsh uh, describing his experience of photographing Winston Churchill. My portrait of Winston Church Churchill changed my life. I knew that after I had taken it, it was an important picture, but I could have hardly dreamed that it would become one of the most widely reproduced images in the history of photography. In 1941, Churchill visited first Washington and then Ottawa, where Karch lived. The Prime Minister, Mackenzie King, invited me to be present. After an electrifying speech, I waited in the Speaker's chamber where, the evening before, I had set up my lights and my camera. The Prime Minister, arm and a Prime Minister of Canada, Mackenzie King, the Prime Minister, arm in arm with Churchill, followed by his entourage, started to lead him into the room. I switched on my floodlights and a surprised Churchill growled, what's this, what's this? No one had the courage to explain. I timorously stepped forward and said, sir, I hope I will be fortunate enough to make a portrait worthy of this historic occasion. He glanced at me and demanded, why was I not told? 
When, I, when his entourage began to laugh, this hardly helped matters for me. Churchill lit a fresh cigar. He was frequently seen with a cigar, kind of a, almost a, a, as much of a trademark as his, his walking stick. Churchill lit a fresh cigar, puffed at it with a mischievous air, and then magnanimously relented. You may take one. Churchill's cigar was ever-present. I held out an ashtray, but he would not dispose of it. I went back to my camera, made sure everything was all right technically. I waited. He continued to chomp on his cigar quite vigorously. I waited. Then I stepped toward him, and without premeditation, but ever so respectfully, I said, forgive me, sir, and plucked the cigar out of his mouth. By the time I got back to my camera, he looked so belligerent that he could have devoured me. And it was at that instant I took the photo. <laughs> so I always like to thank Bertrand Stark, who was uh, somebody who brought that quote to my attention. I would not ever found it before, so podcast listener uh, brought that in. So, so one of the things that's interesting about Karsh is that the light that he used in his photographs seems to come from Everywhere. Where is the light coming from on JFK's face here? Seems to be shadows coming from one side. You know, there's some shadow down here, which suggests a light that's up there. But then there's another light sort of grazing his face. And, you know, how are we getting the highlights over here on his ear? And it seems as though light's coming from everywhere. So he was really masterful at lighting the portrait. Uh, he also frequently would lightly oil the skin of his subjects to give it a kind of a sheen. Uh, but again, here uh, with Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway, you can see that light is coming from behind, behind on either side, from above, from above and to the right, all at the same time. So it seems to be light that's kind of coming, you know, coming from, from multiple different sources, and yet directionality sort of always seems to you know, be one direction with some additional bits and pieces. Here's a, this great, powerful picture of Fidel Castro. Well, in that quote, he said he set up the night before, so it seemed like he took some time to set took it up. Took some time to set it up, probably had a stand-in model to, you know, be there and be able to see what was going on. Arnold Newman, a photographer from the 1950s through the 1980s, Newman's idea of photographic portraiture has to do with the environment. So when he photographs the great modern dancer Martha Graham, he photographs her in the dancer's studio at the bar. When he photographs Alexander Calder, the sculptor, he photographs Calder's head floating in space in much the same way that one of Calder's mobiles might float. And then we have this, this great series of portraits, uh, really his contact sheet, his test sheet, of the exposures he made uh, while photographing Igor Stravinsky. And I'm going to sort of tell you that I, I don't know this for sure. Like, there's nothing been kind of written down about this. But I do know that these pictures are put into the sequence in which Newman shot them. And it's rare that we get a chance to kind of see how a, a photographer approaches a subject. So I kind of want to walk you through this process uh, sort of probably doing some conjecture that may or may not be true, but giving you an idea of what, what's happening here. So here's Stravinsky with his wife. To me, this looks like an obligatory portrait. He's commissioned to photograph Stravinsky, not to photograph Stravinsky's wife, but as a courtesy to the subject, he photographs Stravinsky with his wife. 
he puts a check mark on it because he's going to make a print of it for them and send it to them as a courtesy thank you gift, right? So then Stravinsky wants to make sure is, you know, loosened up and relaxed, so he gets him to sit down and play something. And then, you know, he gets him up and he poses him with this sort of crossed arm pose. He kind of likes that, but notice that there's not much of the environment. And Newman, known for his environmental portraiture, probably doesn't like that very much. So he keeps trying, he moves the camera back, he poses Stravinsky inside the open lid of the piano, kind of works with the triangle inside of a triangle, and he maybe likes this one, maybe not that much, but then he moves down here and begins to play with the idea that the, the top of the piano might look like a musical note, poses Stravinsky in front, kind of likes that, maybe doesn't like it, ultimately the merger of the piano's lid and Stravinsky's head, then he kind of comes over here and poses Stravinsky completely against the piano's lid, not quite what he wants. Then he comes up with this sort of interesting little Z shape or something like ziggity zag of hands, hand on head, hand down at the piano. He kind of likes that triangle over here. And then you'll notice that he moves the camera back and doesn't move the camera again. He moves the camera back and suddenly recognizes that he's seen something that he hasn't seen before. He moves the camera back, changes its position ever so slightly here, plays with the same crossed arm pose or variation of it that he had up here early on. Hand at the, at the face, that doesn't work and there's a kind of an odd merger of the piano prop rod and Stravinsky himself. Sits Stravinsky down at the keyboard and you can see that from here on out it's just a series of refinements refining the pose, figuring out where he wants to go. And ultimately what he does is he picks this picture that is then cropped like that. That's just three stars in Photoshop. Three stars in Photoshop, right? I mean, it, but what's really interesting is how rarely we get a chance to see a great photographer sort of working through the process. And again, I'm likely to have made 90% of that up. Maybe even 100% of it. You know, I did make it up. But as a photographer, we can kind of take apart what he's doing. And since Mrs. Stravinsky doesn't appear anywhere else, we can sort of assume that, you know, that's what that is. And, but I can really see him just sort of saying, aha, the piano's lid is a note. And now, and, and ultimately winding up with one small variation on a pose that he liked to begin with, the ziggity-zaggity hands, but not using all of it. Really amazing, really kind of just fascinating to watch him walk through that process of trying to figure out how to, how to make that go. <laughs> Irving Penn, go ahead. And to mirror the triangle of the piano. Yeah, piano. arm that mirrored the triangle of the piano. Well, plus it looks like Stravinsky's music. Yes. It's so atonal. <laughs> yep. It, it, mirrored, it mirrored the, the, the idea of him as a musician, but also the sort of like, yeah, the atonal quality of, you know, much of what he, what he produced. So Irving Penn is the opposite of Arnold Newman. Irving Penn said, you know, I don't care about the environment that the subject is in. I want the subject to be in a neutral environment. The background doesn't matter. Therefore, for almost his entire career, he used a completely neutral background. Completely neutral background. and use the studio with light source that is almost always up above 
Anybody know who these guys are? The no. <laughs> no, the Beatles. This is the Grateful you know, Dead on the right. Right, yeah, of course. And then uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company. Yeah, Big Brother and the Holding Company Janice with a very young Janis Janice Joplin. Oh, I remember when that album came out. Yeah, see, there you go. <laughs> One of the things that's fascinating about this portrait from a structural point of view is, so... Penn is asked to make a photograph of two major rock and roll bands of a, of a particular time period. And he makes two photographs all in one photograph. And while we might sort of think, at least initially, that it's sort of split down the middle, this gesture from one side to the other kind of links them together. But what he's done really is kind of made a mirror image in some way without everything being mirrored. It's pretty nice, pretty nicely done. And what was interesting is that Penn did this over and over and over again. And he did it in subjects with subjects that ranged from people from wildly divergent cultures to musicians and high fashion as well. So musicians, anybody know who this is? Oh, true. Uh, trumpet player. Miles Davis. Miles Davis. You're right, trumpet player dude. Miles Davis with his distinctly wrinkly skin. I said Miles Davis. I said Miles Davis. Oh, I said trumpet dude. Trumpet dude, Miles Davis. I heard it from the same place there back there. Richard Avedon also using a neutralizing studio instead of an environment to describe everyone from a sort of troubled starlet to an albino beekeeper. She does look troubled. She does, in fact. And then this picture, which I think is really interesting, especially in comparison to the Arnold Newman photograph of Stravinsky. This is Igor Stravinsky a number of years later in this triple portrait that speaks not only to who Stravinsky is, but also to the, the, the world of the aging population. He talks about him aging. You can, see, you can almost see it happening. In Who? this triptych image. Who? Who's aging? Stravinsky. Oh, yeah. Oh. And then uh, Avedon died in 2004 while he was uh, just actually shortly after he'd finished this project on uh, the 2004 election. So these are some of the last pictures that he made. Pretty interesting. Robert Maplethorpe, a photographer who uh, made his name during the 1980s. And uh, he made his name during the 1980s as a photographer of, of, of a wide variety of things, but portraiture was a big part of what he was after. Uh, and uh, his portraits were almost always of somebody who was at the sort of height of something. So whether it was the height of physical human beauty or, you know, the height of fame as a young actor, or the height of uh, sort of a, a sexual uh, world that they lived in, or whether it was the most beautiful woman that he imagined himself ever seeing, or himself dressed as the most beautiful woman he ever imagined seeing. So 
Maplethorpe was a really interesting character. We have a couple of really terrific books about Maplethorpe in the uh, in in our library. Uh, a photographer who ran afoul of the national endowments of the of the arts uh, because his work explored a lot of homoerotic themes, and uh, there was some suggestion that that stuff shouldn't be paid for with national endowment for the arts money and essentially. Uh, the, uh, the, the congressmen and senators who didn't think that National Endowment for the Arts should, uh, should do that stuff essentially took the National Endowment for the Arts away. Uh, sort of uh, no longer exists, not in the way that it, that it used to. Cindy Sherman's approach to portraiture is self-portraiture. Self-portraiture. She has been photographing mostly herself for almost 40 years. And she portrays various characters using makeup, using location, using props, most of the time exploring the relationship that women have to the rest of the world, how women are, are portrayed, how they're portrayed in slasher films, how they're portrayed in the film noir films of the 1950s, uh, how they're portrayed in advertising. And then Annie Leibowitz. Annie Leibowitz, a photographer who uh, uh, has really chronicled American culture. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, sort of the troubadour of the road here, Bruce Springsteen in a classic American convertible, or Christo, the artist who wraps stuff all wrapped up in uh, the middle of uh, Central Park, or Schwarzenegger on a, you know, on a horse. Or the Queen of England. Some of, uh, some of these pictures, fairly recent, maybe eight years old now, Queen Elizabeth. And uh, there's a, if, if you follow the Twitter feed, there's a phenomenal video that just uh, got tweeted out of uh, Leibowitz photographing the Queen of England, two women who are used to getting their way. One of them wins. A very contemporary uh, portraitist, a guy named Alex Soth. And uh, Soth here is describing photographing Andy Goldsworthy. We'll actually look at Andy Goldsworthy's work a little bit later on in the semester as a conceptual photographer. Uh, but Goldsworthy is, just to give you an idea, Goldsworthy is a sculptor predominantly, the guy who is portrayed in the right-hand picture. He's a sculptor who makes transient sculptures sort of like icicles that he freezes together in various ways, and then those sculptures are left out in the natural world, photographed by him. And so you know a little bit about Goldsworthy, all right? So he says, uh, so Alex Soth says, the first day I met with Goldsworthy, he produced this temporary sculpture with icicles. Since this really had nothing to do with the commission, the image wasn't used in the story. But I think this practice of making small temporary sculptures is closer to the heart of Goldsworthy's work. For me, photography is also about this very fleeting moment. With portraiture, you have this brief time with a subject, sometimes minutes, but sometimes hours, but it's always brief. Inevitably, you're battling the weather, the time of day, the mood, you scurry around trying to make the thing, snap the shutter, and it all begins to dissipate. It's profoundly temporal, and the photograph serves as a document of the encounter. A document of the encounter. 
The critic Glenn Gordon writes about Alex Soth's portraits, the formal, almost iconic stability of his portraits is a natural result of his methodical use of the large format 8 by 10 inch camera. The process is measured and deliberate, is measured and deliberate, the furthest thing from point and shoot. His old 8 by 10 wooden view camera is a mahogany confessional. Another contemporary portraitist, Suzanne Optin, her series Soldier depicts thought-provoking yet subtle portraits that present a different impression of the war in Iraq by giving viewers a rare close-up look at some of the men and women who served uh, their country. She photographs soldiers who recently served a tour of duty in Iraq or in Afghanistan and who were receiving additional training at Fort Drum in upstate New York when she was making these pictures. Optin says, I'm making these portraits, in making these portraits of soldiers, I simply wanted to look into the face of someone who had seen something unforgettable. Which might play again back to the idea Deb articulated early on of connecting with that inner person somehow. It's also interesting to note, and I've got this little sort of detail here, here is Suzanne Optin next to one of her photographs displayed in a gallery. And one of the interesting things is contemporary photography is often large, larger than life. The head of the soldier is much, much larger than a real head. And it sort of turns that idea of the daguerreotype portrait, these tiny little things, on its head with the much larger uh, capacities of, uh, of contemporary photography. Loretta Lux. Loretta Lux, photographing starting in the 1990s on to the present. And as we look at these photographs by Loretta Lux, they seem a little, a little strange. And somehow it's weird that the kid's green eyes, which seem a little larger than they should look, seem to match his shirt, matches the wall. What Loretta Lux does is she takes parts from multiple pictures of children and combines them, sometimes children and sometimes adults. So what we're looking at is not any one person. She's making up a composite reality of various people who then become this one child. Chuck Close. Chuck Close has almost always used photographs as source material to create his artful portraits, uh, whether it is his painstakingly hyper-realistic, larger-than-life paintings. Some of you may have seen some of Chuck Close's paintings at the Art Institute of Chicago. There are several on display. Uh, or in making photographs. In 1999, he began making daguerreotype portraits. Close said, I'm not interested, and this is a self-portrait of him over here and a portrait of someone else over on the left. I'm not interested in daguerreotypes because it is an antiquarian, old-fashioned process. I like them because, from my point of view, photography never got any better than it was in 1840. And here is, in fact, that uh, portrait of Brad Pitt. Uh, I thought it was in a subsequent slideshow, but here it is. 
close set of this Brad Pitt daguerreotype portrait, you can't be the fair-haired young boy forever. At some point, Pitt will have to become some sort of character actor. Maybe a photograph of him with crow's feet and furrowed brow is good for him. It humanizes him. It makes him less of a cinema god and more of a person. Micah Guerin traveled to the southern city of Marja, uh, site of a major offensive uh, in, uh, in the uh, Afghan uh, conflict. And he went there with a 4 by 5 camera to photograph a diverse cast of characters, soldiers, elders, farmers, even robots, people and things whose actions will decide the mission's outcome. This guy is a poppy farmer in Marja who came to the government center to sign up for a USAID cash for work program. <clears throat> On the left is Colonel Brian Christmas, a Marine commander who took Northern Marja as part of the International Security Assistance Force Operation Mushtrack in, uh, in March of, of, of that year. He was called up as part of President Barack Obama's surge this is a battle that, ha that has to have patience, Colonel Christmas told the photographer. A rush to failure is the biggest risk. You can see those kinds of things on, uh, on the faces of these guys. This is an Afghan National Army soldier on the right. Since apartheid's fall in 1994, South African photography has exploded uh, from the grip of censorship that had uh, held it prior to that time, and it's exploded onto an international stage. <clears throat> a key figure in this movement is Zuletu Mtetwa. I met him. Did you meet Zuletu? Zuletu? I think that's the title. Zuletu Mtetwa, whose stunning portraits powerfully frame black South Africans as dignified and elegant, even under the duress of social and economic hardship. So you met him last, uh, last March at the SPE conference. Oh, yeah, and he was at the party afterwards. It was yeah. Fun. yeah. Pretty cool. I had cool glasses. He did have cool glasses, it's true. It's an African. <laughs> Working in urban and rural landscapes, Ntetwa documents a range of aspects of South Africa and the environment uh, to, from landscape to labor issues. And uh, what's interesting is that a lot of the photographs that came out uh, in, in the post-apartheid uh, uh, time uh, were what curators called Afro-pessimism. And what they suggested was that Ntetwa's work was sort of moving away from that toward a more optimistic, more positive uh, outlook. Peter Hugo, for the past uh, year, uh, two years ago I guess now, uh, Hugo was photographing the people and landscape of an expansive dump of obsolete technology in Ghana. The area on the outskirts of a slum uh, is referred to by local inhabitants as Sodom and Gomorrah, a vivid acknowledgement of the profound inhumanity of the place. So what happens is uh, the, the uh, uh, first world sends to the third world out-of-date technology that we no longer need. But then again, it's out-of-date technology that they don't need either. So it ends up in this dump. And what happens is that these guys walk around the dump and try and find little bits and pieces of that technology that can be uh, removed. So they can find, 
from motherboards and monitors and discarded hard drives, uh, bits and pieces of metal that they can remove and melt down and uh, get money for. Um, so uh, pretty powerful, powerful portraits. That, and the reason I've included them, is that they sort of shift the idea of the portrait from being a picture that is merely of a person to a picture that is of, of a person and sort of a social situation. So the idea that a portrait can transcend just this young man's face and who he is, but also speak to his life, to his world, uh, and to the way in which uh, he's living. Uh, so uh, a really interesting, uh, uh, interesting photographer. So, uh, Ghana. So, uh, I'll just I'll wind up with this, uh, you know, and I, I it's funny to me that it's somebody who writes for a car magazine, but Peter Egan. People look different in different eras, and there's no moving them backward or forward in time. Faces reflect the world they've been looking at. Mm -hmm.